0: Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Talber, the senior director of Town Hall Programs. This episode is the first in a three-part series exploring the evolution of judicial independence in America and its critical role in our democracy from the founding to present day. Part 1 explores the Founders' intentions surrounding the establishment of the federal judiciary and the role of the courts during the nation's formative years, with award-winning historians Mary Sarah Builder of Boston College Law School and Jack Raycove of Stanford University. Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. The series is presented in partnership with the Federal Judicial Center and was hosted live on May 15th, 2023. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center. It's so exciting to see you all here in Kirby Theater. Friends, let's begin as always by inspiring ourselves for the learning ahead by reciting together the National Constitution Center's mission statement. Here we go, I know some of you know it by heart. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people on a non-partisan basis. Excellent. I knew you could do it. We are honored to be joined today by members of the Federal Judicial Center. That is the organization that brings together federal judges for learning and education. And I'm so grateful to our friends at the Federal Judicial Center, including John Cook and Clara Aldman, for this great collaboration. We've done it for years, and it's marvelous to start it up again and, and be back in person. Friends, we've got three great panels, and we're going to begin with a dream team of Madisonian scholars. Both of them brave the elements to be here, and how exciting to be joined by uh, Jack Raykov and Mary Builder to talk about Madison and judicial review. I just can't imagine a better team to learn from. Mary Sarah Builders, Founders Professor of Law at Boston College Law School. She's the author of three books, including the definitive and wonderfully titled, Madison's Hand, Revising the Constitutional Convention, The Transatlantic Constitution, Colonial Legal Culture and the Empire, and most recently, Female Genius, Eliza Harriet and George Washington at the Dawn of the Constitution. And Jack Rakoff is William Robertson, co-professor of history and American studies and professor of political science and law at Stanford. He's the author of many definitive books as well, including the Uh, wonderfully titled and and, uh, invaluable, Original Meanings, Politics and Ideas in the Making of the Constitution, also Revolutionaries, A New History of the Invention of America, and most recently, Beyond Belief, Beyond Conscience, the Radical Significance of the Free Exercise of Religion. Uh, Mary Sarah Builder and Jack Rinkoff, I've learned so much from you. It's really a thrill to uh, be able to talk together. We have a big topic um, and we're going to shed some light on it. And That's the question of judicial independence at the founding. And There are many places we could start, but let's start with Madison because you've both written so powerfully about him and he'll ground things. Uh, Jack Rakoff, you've talked about Madison's unique theory of judicial review which changed over time. Tell us about it. How did Madison understand judicial independence?
2: My starting position for for thinking about Madison is first and foremost to think about Madison as the framer of the Constitution. So coming to grips with uh, what was, I think, the most creative period of his political thinking from roughly about the summer of 1785 down to the Constitutional Convention and then working his way through the ratification struggle. And if you want to uh, conceptualize Madison's ideas of judicial independence at that formative moment in the adoption of the Constitution, Uh, I think you'd want to emphasize at least these points. First, Madison's thinking in general was driven by the belief that whichever institution of government represented the people most directly would be the most powerful and the most potent. So that always meant at the state level, the lower house of assembly, and with the new federal congress, the house of representatives, was the one institution you'd have to worry the most about. And I think Madison's ideas about judicial power were driven by his concerns with the nature of political power in a modern republic, where the people themselves would be able to express their preferences and their beliefs, and also their prejudices, uh, through, you know, the, through the political system. So I think when Madison thought about judicial power uh, at the time when the Constitution was adopted, um, I think his first concern, and this this should sound somewhat strange to a modern audience, uh, was that most lawmakers would be amateurs. Uh, they would come and go. Uh, they would not be veteran legislators. Uh, they would not have much experience. They would not really know how to draft statutes. Uh, and so when Madison uh, started setting up his agenda for Philadelphia, he drew upon a curious provision in the New York State Constitution, which had created what was called a council revision, which consisted of uh, the governor, who was properly elected, um, uh, and you know some some set of members, a couple members of his council, then some members uh, of the New York State Supreme Court, and he wanted and he wanted this body to have a limited veto, a limited negative on legislation. Uh, meaning that as, while legislation was pending, a joint executive judicial council would be able to review it. Uh, and his concern here was, if you start with the assumption, which actually, which is empirically was 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 really quite a quite a valid assumption, that most lawmakers would be amateurs, he felt there would be a net improvement in the quality of legislation if you involved judges early in the proceedings rather than wait for cases to arise under, you know, under the ordinary rules of jurisprudence so the cases with constitutional implications would come to them in due course somewhere down the road as controversies arose. Madison, in a sense, had a kind of trade-off theory. I think if, if we want to think broadly and deeply about, the, about uh, some initial understanding, or at least an initial conception of judicial independence, Madison, in a sense, was playing somewhat fast and loose, or at least was playing somewhat liberally, uh, with the ideas of judicial independence that, uh, the, that the framers had inherited, um, you know, both from you know, certain principles of the British Constitution in the 18th century and also from their reading of Montesquieu, and particularly his chapters uh, in the Spirit of the Laws, which discussed the British Constitution. So what, I think what Madison wanted to do was to kind of improve the quality, of, was to involve judges in the actual business of legislating in an advisory capacity plus ab initio from the beginning, uh, in the hope that you'd preempt or kind of reduce the number of problems you might encounter uh, later on. Uh, and he presented this uh, proposal at the convention, and it was, it was discussed quite vigorously on a couple occasions. Uh, it had strong support from James Wilson, uh, you know, a Pennsylvanian of some prom- prominence, who was also a member of the first Supreme Court uh, under Chief, Ju- Chief Justice John Jay. Uh, eventually the measure was defeated, as we all know, but the comments on it are quite interesting, because what the comments demonstrate... Is that the critics of the proposal said this a, a, this would actually ask judges to act in an improper capacity, and that the the best the best occasion for judges to determine uh, on the basis that, the independence that Article Three would eventually give them uh, whether the laws were constitutional or not would would come to them when cases and cases and controversies properly presented the right set of facts for their, for their review. In other words, the strongest statements we have about whether or not the idea of judicial you know, federal judicial review of, of the constitutionality of both federal and state legislation was part of the original understanding, original intentions of 1787 and 1788 really come out of the debate over Madison's counsel. So Madison's counsel shows that he was willing to modify, in, in kind of curious ways, the idea of strict judicial independence as being wholly separate from the legislative process on the one hand. And then the response to it indicates uh, that uh, you know, other framers of the Constitution felt uh, that the whole purpose of judicial independence would be to lay a foundation for the doctrine we eventually came to call judicial review.
1: So interesting. Um, Mary Sarah builder Sir Jack Rakoff has put on the table the centrality of this Council of Revision. When Madison thought about the Council of Revision and about judicial review, uh, did he see judges as enforcing separation of powers limits or federalism limitations or the Bill of Rights or all of those? And did his views change? You, in your book, Madison's Hand, you say he didn't talk much about judicial review at the convention, but what, precise, what kind of review did he see judges as exercising and, and how did that change?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think Jack makes such a great point about how, um, you know, if, if we take the term judicial independence, we have to figure out, What do we mean by judges? What's their role in the Constitution as a system of government? And then what does it mean to be independent? Um, Who are you independent from? And I think what's so interesting about this period is that a set of ideas that had been established in the constitutional history of Great Britain about what judicial independence means um, has to be completely rethought. Because in Great Britain, a long tradition through the 1600s and 1700s involved the idea of independence of judges. But judges aren't separated, so they don't have a separated function. And they understand independence um, to be very much independence from the king. And there's a lot of the stories of. the constitutional battles in the 1600s around the revolution and then re-understood in the 1760s when George um, III comes to power, involve key moments where judges are or are not independent. And what they mean by that is that judges before um, the English Revolution, before the sort of the 1701 act of settlement, served at the will of the king, at the king's pleasure. And so there's a great battle over the 1600s and um, about the idea of judges beginning to serve Bene Gesserin on good behavior or as long as they behave. And and that's one giant, enormous battle um, that they have. And then in the um, 18th century, That obviously for the American colonists is a huge battle. Their judges don't sit, basically, with good behavior tenure. And also their judges are controlled by salary, by the crown. And so those two elements, which we don't think of, we tend to think of this question in terms of checks and balances, separation of power, judicial review, but that's not how they're thinking about it. The two key provisions for them are, do you have a good behavior tenure, and who's paying your salary? and can it be reduced? And those are the two complaints in the Declaration of Independence about the judges are, the judges have been made to be at the will of the crown because they don't have good behavior tenures and they serve um, and their salaries can be changed. And in that sense, if we think about the framing, Madison's just, he's just, not inter- sorry, he's just not that interested in the judiciary. He thinks the Council of Revision will pick up a big part of um, the job with respect to what we would think of, of review of congressional legislation, and he assumes that the negative Congress will review um, state legislation, and he actually complains to Jefferson at the end of the convention that one of the biggest problems with the Constitution is the loss of this congressional review of state legislation, which is what the Privy Council had done in the colonies. And, and but what they do build into Article Three which is very under-imagined, is those two key provisions, that judges are going to serve um, uh, on good behavior, which we come to construe as lifetime tenure, and their salaries can't be reduced in office. And the idea there is, therefore, judges are going to be independent. But in the world where what you're being independent of, the crown, that's one understanding of independence. What does it mean to be independent when power lies in the people? And that, of course, is the whole problem, is, is when power lies in the people, when you understand the Constitution to be the will of the people, when you understand all the branches to be the will of the people, who are you independent of becomes a much more complicated problem. And I think that um, a lot of the early period is trying to work out what does this, tradition of judicial independence look like now that authority is in the people as opposed to the crown, where it's, a, where it's sort of easy. You're either with the crown or you're against the crown.
1: That's so interesting, and framing it that way seems exactly right. And Hamilton says in, in Federalist 78, a conflict between the statute representing the will of the legislatures and the Constitution representing the will of the people. The judges prefer the principle to the agent, but who's the people? So Jack, you say that the central battles over judicial independence during the Marshall Court weren't focused on Marbury, but on McCullough and on the um, scope of congressional power. And if you interpret congressional power broadly as Hamilton does, that has a totally different uh, vision of the role of judges than if you interpret it narrowly as Jefferson did. So tell us about the debates between Hamilton on the one hand and Jefferson and Madison on the other about judicial independence during the Marshall Court? Ooh, <laughs>
2: that's, that's a total order. Um, that's why you're here. I'm really eager for you to that. Let me, to help let let me back up it. slightly. So, so one of Madison's key proposals in 1787 would have been to give Congress, uh, we would say, a veto, but the preferred term, a negative on state laws. And um, that measure was, although the convention continued to discuss it almost down to the end, that measure was eventually killed in mid-July, right after the, the critical vote on giving each, giving each state an equal vote in the Senate. In its place, we, we see the first appearance of the Supremacy Clause, which for all intents and purposes does create judicial review, uh, imposing it explicitly on judges at the state level. And I think most scholars assume implicitly assuming that well it has to be applied directly to judges at the state level because you can't be one hundred percent sure of their confidence or the sense of ob- their their obligations implicitly of course federal judges are going are, you know are, are 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 going to have the same power. but the question arises so one, if you assume that uh, a concept of just review was either implicitly or explicitly involved in the supremacy clause and in and, and in other discussions uh against whom is it most likely to be directed. So everyone who's gone to school, and, you know, for all the distinguished brethren uh, in the audience here, I'm sure, you know, most of you were, were taught this at the time. You know, the idea that Marbury versus Madison is the decisive case in terms of, quote, unquote, establishing uh, this is uh, Alexander Bickel's language in his famous book, The Least Dangerous Branch, in terms of establishing the doctrine of judicial review, has become kind of, I don't know, a shibboleth or a kind of, you know, uh, you know a, a, a high statement of judicial theory. What I've always argued is this story, and because I am actually a Madisonian, not just in terms of my interest, but really in terms of my philosophy, is that uh, Madison's analysis says that the the most serious problems of maintaining uh, the federal constitution are going to arise not in controversies between congress and the federal courts it's going to involve really the problem of what's going to go on at the state level where what happens if you have embassy anticipates a kind of mcculloch versus maryland kind of situation in which states are going to act somehow in defiance of some major act of some, some, some major act of federal legislation. So the way I teach it by Stanford undergraduates, and you know, but I, I, I hope you won't mind if I take this liberty with you as well, is to say, if you had a choice when you're asking which of these two cases is a better uh, uh, indicator of, of, of the main purpose of judicial review. And I think this actually, I think this echoes uh, Justice Holmes uh, as well. That, uh, you know, whether or not the court, the Supreme Court, or federal courts in general, had the power to overrule Congress, that's a secondary you know, consideration. They don't have the power to overrule the state courts, then we're in, in big trouble. And so I think if you have a choice between Marbury, which is 1803, and McCulloch, which is 1819, 1819 is the more important case, and it's more consistent with Madison's theory, which I think is, remains today, I think remains an ex- extremely powerful, indeed accurate theory, uh, that the real problem is what do you do about misbehavior, however you want to define that, uh, at, uh, at the state level, and I'll just add one footnote here. When by, by the time we get to 1819, which of course is 40 years after the uh, excuse me 30 years after the Constitution has been uh, ratified, Madison is much more sympathetic to judicial power and to its importance 30 years later than he had been. As, as Mary was suggesting, uh, at the time the Constitution was written, what he remains nervous about, and Jeff, this will tie in to your question, is he doesn't mind the, the holding in. Uh, uh, McCullough in, in, in the abstract, but he doesn't like uh, Marshall's reliance on the broad Hamiltonian reading of the necessary and proper clause. Uh, because in Madison, by Madison's way of analysis, both going back to the late 1780s, early uh, 1791, the famous debate over the bank, uh, if Madison's main concern was to how do you get the legislature to try to limit itself, to teach the legislature that the necessary and proper clause is, is wide open, uh, is really is essentially an, an invitation to legislate with as much discretion uh, as, as you want to exercise that would run against madison 's underlying concern that the legislative power remained the most dangerous element or what he called the impetuous vortex in federalist forty eight the impetuous vortex of the legislature remained the most serious source of constitutional imbalance, so he, I think he was amenable to the holding in McCulloch. In general, but he didn't like Marshall's reasoning, because Marshall was, a, you know, was a full-blown Hamiltonian. You know, in seventeen, uh, in eighteen nineteen, as he'd been pretty much in seventeen eighty nine, uh, and he didn't want he, he, he didn't want that kind of broad Hamiltonian reading of necessary and proper to prevail.
1: Fascinating. Can I ask you, Mary, to say more about the difference between Hamilton, Madison, and Jefferson? Jefferson and Madison, unlike Hamilton, want a Bill of Rights, and Jefferson says the courts will enforce it, and then, and yet in the Marshall era, Jefferson ends up siding with Spencer Roan about the most radical questioning of judicial power to revisit state court decisions. My, my broad question is, were Madison and Hamilton and uh, Jefferson being opportunistic and, and basically shifting their views about judicial review based on whether they like the results, or did they have a, a, a different vision of what kinds of rights judges should enforce?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and i 'm going to throw John Adams in because I think um, Adams, when you talk about the judiciary, is uh, such an important person he 's not at the um, uh, at the convention, but his book, Defense of the um, Constitutions was serialized in a paper that summer and he 's very influential in the way that the three articles get written and so I think if you th- if you think about what happens in the period between um, let's say 1787, 1789, and up through if you take to 1820. So that's a, you know, it's almost a 50-year period. And um, uh, one of the things that happens is, is, is the judiciary um, begins to figure out what should its role be. Because again, coming back to Article Three, which is the smallest article, and, and you know, Article I, Congress, has lots of specifics in it. Article Two about the executive, has, more, has quite a few specifics. Article 3 doesn't have a lot of specifics. It just says there's one Supreme Court. And, um, and so a lot of what happens in this period is everybody's trying to sort out what should the judiciary do, particularly what should the judiciary do, the federal judiciary do, with respect to the rest of the constitutional system. And if you think about um, Federalist uh, 78, Hamilton's view on that, one of the things that I think is really interesting is if you read Federalist 78 very carefully, Hamilton says um, uh, the judiciary is not going to be that dangerous for the political rights in the Constitution. And I think what he means by that is some sense of the political aspects that were written into the Constitution, things like uh, habeas corpus, uh, no titles of nobility, these kind of classic British constitutional rights. And then he goes on to say um, there's other things then, he uses the word independent, that an independent judiciary can do. And this is where I think he does tie a little bit to the concerns that Madison has, because he says um, the people or legislation can go through too fast. Um, It can kind of be a product of a moment or they're often worried about sort of partisan, conniving, demagogues pushing legislation through. And one of the things that the judiciary can do is almost like slow that down. And so that's one of the things he says in Federal 78 is the judiciary can sort of help balance the... Um, impulsiveness of legislation. And then he goes on to say, another problem with legislation, and again I think he's thinking at the federal level but also at the state level, is that legislation can be overly severe with respect to private individuals. And one of the things the judiciary can do is help mitigate that severity. And he says if the judiciary sort of um, slows things down, mitigates the severity, pulls things in, that will actually in turn encourage legislation to be more careful and more specific. And so in some ways he's seen it as a sort of back and forth in what Adams would have assumed was the more important thing a sort of checks and balance kind of of way. And so I, I think that one of the interesting things if we think about that aspect of you know this topic of judicial independence what what sort of the role of judges is the f- Supreme Court justices in this period are trying to figure out what does it look like for their role. And um, under the first Judiciary Act, there are no circuit court judges. There's only district court judges and the Supreme Court judges. There are six of them. My students are always like, how did that work? I'm a big fan of an even number of justices on the Supreme Court, but um, because you don't have a like, majority rule situation. But, um, but, but they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a judge. And one of the things they begin to do over this period is try and and focus on how does judging look different than ordinary politics. And so a lot of what they do in this period that begins to establish this idea of judicial independence is they turn work down. So, you know, can you give advisory opinions? No, you can't give advisory opinions. Uh, how about you solve all the problems of who gets pensions? No, we're not gonna do that. You know, like Literally, the beginning of the court is like, yeah, no, we're not doing that, we're not doing that, we're not doing that, and that also we're not gonna do, and Washington keeps speaking of like, how about you guys do this? No, we're not gonna do that. Um, and But what they do do in that space, and Marshall's a very important aspect of this, is they begin to develop this idea that that judging is its own important task. And it's its own important task in thinking about what it means to be judges for the people, interpreting a people's constitution. But even in this period, um, judging the federal judiciary looks very different than we do today. Because I think today, if we think about what being an independent judiciary looks like, we often think of the Supreme Court, and we think of the Supreme Court's big building, But they don't have that building until the 20th century, right? I mean, that building is a product of um, when you get a president who decides to be a Supreme Court justice and then decides, wait, well, how come we don't have a building? The judiciary (laughs) is embedded in some ways inside Congress. So all through the um, 19th century, the judiciary is sitting, the federal judiciary, the Supreme Court, is sitting inside of Congress. And so there's a way in which our understanding of this very clear separation is, I think, much more a product of the 20th century than it is in this early period. And that's why I think sort of um, they assume there will be judicial review powers. Everybody gets that there's judicial review powers. The the Privy Council had always um, uh, bounded what the colonial legislatures and colonial courts could do. But what that means in a world where everybody, every branch is claiming to be interpreting on the side of the people feels different. And so what happens for the federal judiciary that's just incredibly difficult is trying to figure out how do you not become the king in the room, right? How do you not insist that we're just doing this and we're really the ultimate will, but how do you work in a checks way to interpret the will of the people. How do you make judicial review be meaningful in terms of um, uh, protecting the rights of the people in the Constitution, enforcing the limits in the Constitution without becoming a new kind of king, without insisting that you're the ultimate and only decision makers? And I think that's the great problem for the judiciary throughout this whole period.
2: Jeff, I, I just want to add one point to this. And, and this may seem a little anomalous to the audience, but I think one way to buttress or you know, deepen uh, Mary's point is, is to say that the question of who are the real decision makers within the judiciary branch coming out of the Revolutionary period, are they judges or is it actually the jury? I mean, if you go back to John Adams in the 1760s, uh, and I, I, I quote him at some point I know, in, in my work, says, you know, j- uh, jury should be perfectly competent to decide matters of law and fact alike. And so I think when you start having uh, the Supreme Court justices riding circuit, you know, you know, fr- from the start, um, often they give uh, addresses to the grand juries, uh, you know, who are supposed to be, you know, you know, pursuing whatever charges are going to be brought un- un- under federal law. Um, that's an effort to kind of bring the jurors up to the-, the emerging judiciary's own level of expertise and knowledge. But it also says they see they have a kind of obligation, or also an opportunity, to kind of start playing a much more creative, directive role in terms of, in, in, in terms of law. So how the judiciary defined itself uh, institutionally in a period where the tradition of thinking jury, juries were competent to decide both matters of law and fact alike is another one of those kind of mysterious historical changes which may seem somewhat obscure and kind of antiquarian today but which 18th century scholars like, you know, like Mary and I have to, have to, have to worry about actively. You've both identified
1: a shared um, concern among Adams and Hamilton on the one hand, and Jefferson and Madison on the other, with faction and with separation of powers and maintaining those boundaries. And I wanna ask, was there a partisan valence to conceptions of the judiciary at the founding? On the one hand, the Federalists under Hamilton favor broad congressional power and loose construction and fear the mob, and the Jeffersonians want strict construction and constrained power and fear aristocracy. Did that affect their vision of what judges should do or not?
3: And I think one of the things, you know, when you talk about independent of, independence of the judges and you think about what that meant in the um, British constitutional system, it, it was understood to be a political question. And it, what they meant by that was it was understood to be what independent judges did was they... Um, they stood up to the king. And so I'm working on a biography of the great constitutional historian uh, Catherine Macaulay, and she tells a story that was widely reproduced and was very influential on John Adams, and and he writes a long set of newspaper editorials about judicial independence. And there's a very famous case involving ship money. The king's sort of like, I'm going to tax everybody, and it goes to the court. Can the king tax everybody instead of parliament? That's the the short version. And um, seven judges say yes, and five judges say no. And there's a very key judge, uh, George Crook. And George Crook, according to the histories and Macaulay and what Adams and the founders read, said, uh, I'm scared of the king, and I don't want the king mad at me, and I don't want my salary cut, and so I'm going to vote in favor of the king's side. And George Crook's wife goes to him and says, I don't care about poverty. I don't care about misery. You should do the honorable thing. And so he votes against the king. And then at the time of the English Revolution, all the judges who voted for the king were impeached. And this becomes a key story about what it means to be, what judicial independence looks like. And what that story comes down um, as is a story about what does it mean to stand up to sort of um, political partisan power that is against the people. And that's the narrative that really comes down. And so when you think about, you know, is it the Jeffersonians or the Adams? Right, the the tension there is once you develop a, a political system that the framers didn't anticipate which has established political parties and you amend the Constitution with the 12th Amendment to institutionalize those political parties into the election system, that's what the 12th Amendment does, uh, is it basically makes sure that, that having a political party is the way to gain power. Then this question of how does the judiciary fit into the very, um, in some ways, globally unusual two-party, American political system becomes very complicated. Before the 12th Amendment, it's not that there aren't, you know, you know, there aren't parties going back and forth, but, but it doesn't necessarily look like they're gonna be institutionalized forever. And then I think that's a really hard question for the judiciary uh, and for what it means to be nonpartisan is once you have a very strong two-party system, where does the judiciary fit in that?
2: I think I would add to Mary's point, and maybe shift it a bit by saying, I, I, to my way of thinking, the, the critical moment historically comes between um, the passage of the Alien Sedition Acts in 1798 and then Marbury versus Madison, not for its own sake, but just as, as an outcome of that struggle in 1803. And the reason I say that is, uh, so it's a wonderful. For those seriously, in the history, there's a wonderful book by a guy named Wendell Byrd called Criminal Dissent, which is uh, part of a series of books he's doing on the act of prosecution of the Sedition Act cases at, you know, the, at the very end of the 1790s during the so-called Quasi-War uh, with France, where the, the amount of collaboration, one could say collusion, uh, between Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, who was the main player here in the administration, and some of the federal judges, led, I think, by Samuel Chase, who's also you know, from Maryland, as a Supreme Court uh, justice. Uh, in terms of uh, arbitrarily pro- you know, prosecuting the Republican, meaning Jeffersonian, Madisonian opponents, on the one hand, and protecting Federalists on the other, even when they say things critical of John Adams as president uh, be, you know, be- becomes quite significant. So there's, there is a deeply partisan moment uh, at the very end of the 1790s where the question of actually thinking politically of the relationship between judiciary and uh, the executive is becoming problematic, or at least you know, becoming, particularly as the Republicans see it, Jefferson, Madison, and, and their supporters see it, is becoming qu- quite problematic. That's all the background to Marbury versus Madison because then you get the Judiciary Act of 18, 1801, which you know, most historians still see, I think, correctly as, as a kind of final effort by the Federalists to lock them, to, to, to retain uh, uh, influence or p- potentially control over the one institution that they can still dominate um, you know, through the deployment of the so-called Midnight Judges and, and you know, the kind of last-minute Judiciary Act of 1801. The party's about to go out of power, but they want to lock themselves into at least give themselves some deeply entrenched stake in national government, uh, you know, through the Judiciary. I mean, that's all the political background to, to Marbury. So Marbury becomes an interesting case, not, 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 I think, because of its great doctrinal significance, but not because of the way it's still taught in many law schools, but as a, as a consequence and an illustration of you know how deeply entrenched and of course it's I mean it's it, it, uh, the, you know, the the partisan relationship was it is it's also worth going back and saying in, in 1789 when Washington starts um, you know making nominations for you know the, both the Supreme Court and the federal district courts the question of loyalty to the new regime uh, became a major factor that's to say you would expect the, you know the preponderance of judges uh, appointed uh, nominated and, and confirmed in 1789 and 1790 uh, to be, you know, federalist partisans in the sense of, you know, enthusiastic supporters of ratification uh, of the Constitution. Uh, the problem that arises then is, is once political parties start forming in the middle, seriously, in the middle, in the mid-1790s, you know, then the death of partisan passion is ratcheted up, and 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 the question of what does independence mean when the when the partisan forces are running so strong, you know, now I shouldn't go too far this, but. It's not, in some ways, it's not like the situation we're confronting today.
1: Fascinating. Well, we've worked our way up to Marbury, and and Mary, do you agree with Jack that this this is the time when all the partisan forces you've mentioned are coming to a head? The Alien and Sedition Acts prompt the impeachment of Justice Chase and the effort to change the size of the court, and how would you see Marbury? Was the assertion of judicial review Controversial or not, and uh, to what degree did it uh, presage our current battles?
3: Yeah, no, I I think the I mean I think the sort of current scholarship here is is pretty clear that um, everybody assumes there's judicial review. Nobody's interested in that part of the opinion, and um, and in some ways that's not even really what Marshall's talking about. The part of the opinion that um, at the time is very dramatic and controversial is the notion that um, there are aspects of the executive branch power that are not completely political and partisan. That there's parts of the government that have to run regardless of which political party, so to speak, are in power and there's there's sort of some things that you get to do when because it's your party but then there's a whole lot of other stuff that is sort of part of the fabric of the way the Constitution runs. And Marshall's very clear that that you have to insist on this. And then, and then the part that's the judicial review piece, you know, that sort of part of the opinion, if you go back and read that, one of the things that Marshall says over and over again then is we have a, con- a written Constitution. And what he means by that is we have a form of government that is written down on paper. And there's something about that that Changes the way that we have traditionally understood government to work. And, and that puts the judiciary in a new role. And he sort of almost, in some ways, you know, he doesn't know he's going to be on the court at that point as long as he is. But there's ways in which what you can really understand the very long period of Marshall's tenure to be about is sort of working out what does it mean to be a branch of the government. Interpreting a written form of government, and be respectful of the fact that there are other branches, but also understand yourself in some way to be representing the people ultimately. And and you know, I don't. I I think Marshall very much understands that position. One of the things that's um, a sort of curious note in terms of the of the pieces, you know, Marshall gets the position, but one of the people that Washington had wanted to give the chief justiceship to was Patrick Henry, and Patrick Henry turns it down. He's older, he doesn't want to do it, but there's a way in which- He's he, lazy. He, he, yeah, well, he's, I'm <laughs> yeah. gonna give him credit for being sort of done there, been there, done that, gonna, gonna be quiet and retire. But, um, but But that tells us something about how, certainly during Washington's time, the question was, were you favoring a sort of um, broad um, constitutional forward-leaning understanding of the government? And he actually sees Henry, who had been you know, the great anti-federalist, as at that point willing, willing to do that. And then by the time you get to the Marshall years and you get the development of two political parties, then it becomes harder to imagine putting the other political party um, uh, you know, on the bench. But so I think Marbury is just incredibly important as the sort of turning point moment, but not because it announces something completely new.
1: So interesting. Uh, time for closing thoughts in this wonderful discussion. I hear both of you saying, uh, 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 Jack, sum up if you can, what was agreed and what wasn't agreed about judicial independence at the, <laughs> f- f- at the founding. I, I hear you say that in there 30 was, seconds. <laughs> that, well, you can do it, I know. That's why you've come all the way from uh, California.
2: Well, I just flew in from the coast and I'm flying back <laughs> this afternoon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a tough one, Jeff. I mean, I, 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 think, I think I would echo the point that, 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 that Mary just made that, uh, and I was just reading Keith Whittington's, one of his books on, who's a Princeton, very distinguished scholar, Princeton, on this. Uh, I think the novelty of the acceptance that the Constitution was law not just in the new American sense of the term, that's a supreme fundamental law which regulates everything government can do thereafter uh, under its directions, but it was also law in a more conventional sense. It, it, the document was there. It had to be interpreted. You had to know, you, you had to develop rules for its interpretation. Uh, that became the foundation for the development of a distinctively American conception of the judicial function. Um, I happen to think, and you know, this, uh, this will be my last provocation, that it's helpful for us to think, and Mary might disagree with this, I'm not sure, based on what you said about Macaulay, but it seems to me the idea of constitutional law per se is an American invention that the term would not have meant anything, certainly before, perhaps before 1776, uh, but almost certainly before 1787, 1789. There are constitutional norms that judges could, in, in the British tradition, that judges could occasionally invoke. But the idea of having the Constitution as a text against which other texts would be read and interpreted, that it seems to me is a major American innovation and departure, and, and, and if you go back and read Federal 78, is the first mature statement of a theory of the judicial function. The real purpose of Federal 78, Federal 78, is not to justify judicial review. It's really to justify the idea of an independent judiciary, and judicial review becomes the byproduct or you know, the consequence of that argument. I mean, the larger part of the essay is really a discussion of judicial independence per se. Judi- judicial review is is an illustration of what that. Of, of what that concept of independence is, is, you know, may, may come to mean.
1: Fascinating, last words uh, to you, what was agreed and what was not agreed about judicial independence?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what was agreed at the federal level was what's in the Constitution, pretty minimal requirements, um, but on good behavior, lifetime tenure, friends, and um, your salaries can't be reduced in <laughs> office. And then everything else was a little bit up for grabs. And I think in that sense, Jack's point about this sort of one of the things the court will do, the federal courts will do over time, is develop a body around interpreting this new written instrument, the Constitution, and that's very new. It will come to be known as constitutional law, but that type of a sort of separated law doesn't exist in the British tradition, uh, and that's a very important thing. And how one understands that changing over time becomes a very important thing. And Hamilton in some ways in Federal 78 prefigures this because the very last thing he says about why should you have an independent judiciary is he says basically that's gonna be really hard and, and it's gonna involve reading lots of stuff and, and precedents and he said the precedents over time and the sort of history of the own interpretation of this will become more and more complicated, and it will require people to sort of be willing to devote a lot of study and time to this, and that's in part why we give judges sort of lifetime tenure is to, is to be super thoughtful and careful about what it means to be interpreting a constitution on behalf of the people
1: for illuminating our understanding of judicial independence at the founding. Please join me in thanking Jack Rakoff and Mary Sarah Boulder.
0: This episode was produced by John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and me, Taneya Tauber. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's EV team. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Join us next week for part two of this series, where we explore judicial independence in the 20th century and some key Supreme Court rulings from that period. Visit us online for a full lineup of exciting programs and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well. Or watch the videos. They're available in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash media library. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.